This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Listeners, and welcome to the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we are one with the Force, and the Force is with us. I am Glenn Butler, and we are here once again to talk about Star Wars, because there's going to be a new Star War every year, and as long as it's interesting to talk about it, I'm going to keep talking about it. With me, as almost always, is my flesh and blood, my brother, Scott Butler. Scott, they say that rebellions are built on hope. Are you built on hope? No, I am built on fear. Fear in the face of certain death. I accept that fear and maintain control of myself and my crew. This is the quality expected in every podcast host. Also with us is Alana Kelly, uh, who was with us for a great episode about The Force Awakens almost one year ago. And uh, we'll keep being on these episodes... uh, as long as we keep doing them, I suppose. Alana, are you built on hope? Oh, man. I think hope is part of my foundation. That sounds real Christian, but it was that's coincidental. <laughs> coincidental Christianity is one of the best kinds. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's just a coincidence that character dying fell in the shape of a cross. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Thankfully, I think we got away without that one in this film. Yeah, I didn't catch any cross falls, but, you know. (laughs) Uh, Before we talk about anyone falling in the shape of the cross, let me just say for the listeners, this will have spoilers for the entire film. Oh, yeah. Spoilers. Nobody dies and happens to fall in the shape of the crucified Son of God. Well, before we talk about people dying, I think we should probably mention that there will be spoilers. So... People are duly warned, and they were before I just said all that about people dying, so cool. Maybe you should put that in the show notes just in case. Yes, yes I will. If I, rem- if I remember, oh, yeah. which I might not. Spoilers, spoilers for Rogue One, a Star Wars story, which is the particular Star Wars we'll be discussing. Probably spoilers for many other Star Wars properties as well. Just to be on the safe side. Oh yeah, spoiler, George Lucas is a bad screenwriter. Oh, that does spoil a lot of things. (laughs) Also, possibly spoilers for the birdcage. I mean, you never know what'll come up in these things. This is a freewheeling discussion. (laughs) So, we are here with Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, as the somewhat unwieldy title reminds us it is. I was actually kind of disappointed that they didn't have that as the title on the screen, all they called it was Rogue One. I thought it could have used that subtitle. I thought that would have been, I thought that would have been better. That's yeah, my own little thing. Well, okay. To start off our discussion of Rogue One, let me just ask a, a basic, basic question: Was this movie good? 
Well, you know, that's a profound uh, and deep question. I have many thoughts on it. I enjoyed it. I saw it more than once. It fits into the bigger story. But I accidentally didn't care particularly much about any of these characters and found them to be underwritten. But since I enjoyed the movie, and there are many very high production values in it, I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, it's good. I think the problem with the characters is that there's so many of them, and they don't really have time to properly introduce all of them to mm -hmm. the extent that you can actually care about them. Like, if you look at mm -hmm. the original Star Wars, it was like four characters you cared about. It was, it was Han, Luke, Leia, and Obi-Wan. Mm -hmm. You know, even Chewie was sort of a sidekick. It was really only four characters they got you emotionally invested in. And to an extent, Ben Kenobi was only an extension of Luke. You only cared about him because Luke cared about him. So you could argue it was only three. This movie has the pilot, the Jin Erso, the Captain Andor. It has uh, the mystical Chinese martial artist and his sidekick. And, and then the Rebels and Jin's father. And that's a lot of people you're supposed to care about. And not a lot of time to get you emotionally involved in their story. Granted. Well, on a structural level, the original Star Wars also is pretty deliberate in its pacing and takes a long time introducing several of those characters. You spend a while with the droids, and then you spend a while, a good chunk of the movie, with Luke. And you have, you know, meaty scenes with Leia interacting with, with Vader and Tarkin and all that. So there, there are large scenes and sequences based on you know, a character or a group of characters at a time. Rogue One is, well, first, it, it's a movie that was made in the modern day. It is very, very quick-paced. It's kind of throwing all these things once. Yeah, it jumps around a good deal. That's one criticism I've read that I actually agree with, is right at the very beginning of the movie, it does sort of jump around a little too much, and watching it a second time and looking for that... I really only think it's one misstep they make, because they have the extended opening sequence where you see Jin as a child and the attack on her parents. And then after that, they show her for literally about 10 seconds in like some sort of imperial prison before mm -hmm. they cut away to Diego Luna murdering his friend. And then they switch off of that to show the pilot on Jetta before they eventually get back to Jin Erso. So, really, I think it's that 10 seconds that's sort of jarring, because it's... You're jumping from her as a child to her as an adult, but before you even sort of recognize it, you're already jumping away to another character. I, I think that sort of makes it seem jumpier than it would be if they had just had the opening scene and then introduced the other two characters of Diego Luna and the pilot. Mm -hmm. Well, that was one place where they really relied on the music to kind of bring the audience along with them, where they established Jin's theme in that opening sequence and then quote it again when you see her grown up as Felicity Jones and then go off with the assumption that, okay, you know that's her and you're invested in her because you saw this big thing go down when she was a kid. I get the connection they're trying to make by switching immediately from her as a child to show her as an adult, to introduce her as an adult, and connect her to the child that you saw earlier. But it makes it seem kind of jumpy when they only stick with her for 10 seconds before switching off to a completely different character. 
if you're going to do that, have a scene that's two, three, four, five minutes of her doing something. Maybe her getting arrested or her typical day in that prison or something. Or her at a work camp when the convoy is not attacked. Yeah. Right? Because they were like, they're like, oh, Imperial work camp. And they're being transported. But then, like, before we even see any of it, they're busted out of the transport, which was very dramatic. But, like, politically, I think it would have been cool to see whatever an Imperial work camp looks like. Yeah, I, I think maybe they were trying to leave that to the imagination on the assumption yes. that you'll imagine something suitably horrifying. Mm, maybe. Well, I'm basically imagining we're a pente. Well, you would, right? But Scott, is the movie good? <laughs> you didn't answer. <laughs> I would say it is. I mean, it's not perfect. There are things that I quibble about, and as always, it's easier to endlessly explore the couple of missteps, whereas all the good stuff, you just sort of shrug and go, yeah, I like that. But yeah, <sighs> I'd say it's good. I liked the movie. I enjoyed it. I thought it was well put together to tell that story and not completely contradict what was presented in the original film. It did a much better job of that than other examples I could point out, say episode one or episode two or episode three. Uh -huh. So that's a qualified good from two out of the three of us. I'm very curious, Glenn. Where do you fall on the is it good spectrum? Okay. <laughs> Here's okay. That's always your preface for a big rant. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's my deal. What I was wondering about as Scott, we were leaving the theater on Thursday night. I believe my comment was I enjoyed it, but I'm not sure it was good. <laughs> because what I've been thinking about since then is the balance of fan service and making a new thing that stands on its own. And obviously there's going to be a balance to be had there when you're in one of these cinematic universes we've got going on now. But I was trying to think about whether the amount of fan service kind of tips it. Oh, you know what? It For me, it has almost no emotional weight without the context of the franchise. So I think it doesn't stand alone very well. Well, that's something that I've been wondering about on, on exactly those terms. And so when we saw it again, I have a person in my life I can do these little experiments on now. I, I wound <laughs> up dating someone who had never seen Star Trek before and had never seen Star Wars before, except maybe episode one at some point. And so I brought good old boyfriend along to see what he thought of the movie. And he loved it. He had a great old time. Interesting. And there was so much, like, context and details that, you know, kind of went over his head, as they would if you haven't seen Star Wars. But he, he had a great time. He really liked the movie. And who am I to argue? Well, that's interesting testimony from someone who uh, is definitely more, like, na naive of the franchise than the three of us. I think it's kind of like when you go see a movie that's based on a book. And mm. if, you, if you've read the book, then you go see the movie and all you see is the stuff that's missing. Right. You just sit there and go, well, where's that scene and where's that scene? And they don't explain <laughs> why he's doing that and they don't explain why she went there. And, and this scene is missing and that explanation is missing and this secondary character is just cut all together. And you sit there and you go, how does anyone who doesn't know how this goes from the book have any clue what's going on with how much they cut out of the movie? 
Whereas if you haven't read the book and you're just experiencing it as a new story, you follow it fine because you don't realize there's anything missing. Yeah, perhaps some stuff like that. Although, as weird as it would be, in my mind, I'm trying to imagine seeing Rogue One without knowing New Hope at all. And that seems just completely weird to me. But even weirder than that is then watching New Hope later and going, Oh, look, that scene is a callback to a similar scene in Rogue One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen a New Hope since I've seen Rogue One, and I'm very curious about that. That's on my list for the weekend, actually. That's... Rewatch New Hope. That's something else that struck me today, that I actually felt like watching Star Wars again. Which, I haven't sat down and watched the original trilogy in many, many years. Oh, you were not, you were not spurred to watch them after uh, Force Awakens came out? No, I just kind of saw The Force Awakens oh, a couple of times and said, okay, that was fun. And said a lot more on the podcast, but you know. Wow, I felt such a major pull. For me, I think, as with you too, Alana, so much of the pull of this movie was, oh, hey, it's that costume, or oh, hey, it's that set, or oh, hey, it's the Death Star ignition sequence, and oh, hey, it's Peter Cushing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely get, there's definitely like a nostalgia thrill when you recognize stuff from a movie that, especially a movie that you loved or a story that you loved. So yeah, there's like a little ting, like every time there's something cool, like they do a number of cool things that at least I recognize for uh, ship design and and uh, like the weapons that the Empire uses, the the walkers and um, the little the <laughs> there there are two there there's there are the big ones, the ATATs or ATATs. I'm not sure what we're supposed to call them, and then there's the the little. Uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex looking ones seeing them in new contexts was pretty cool that's when I start you know you get the, the your hair stands on end a little that's something that has to be balanced in a lot of these uh, prequel situations as well because I know in some fandoms or in some properties there's kind of a propensity to pull back on things that were established later. I know that's something that happens in a lot of Doctor Who licensed properties, where if somebody's writing a first Doctor era story, they won't reference, like, the Council of the Time Lords or whatever, because that didn't come into existence until much later. And, and writing a story in a particular era of a property is, to an extent, you know, finding a setting for a new story and to an, to an extent trying to recall the uh, the vibe of the old setting. And so having the Adats from Empire in a pre-New Hope story is, is the sort of thing that kind of tings on my radar. Like, obviously it makes sense. I'm not objecting to anything. It, it's, it's just the sort of thing that some people in other properties kind of intentionally don't do. I see the point you're making, but there's definitely narrative legitimacy in seeing them now because one of the mysteries that I enjoyed solving watching the movie is when was it? And it could be any time before A New Hope. However, we learn right at the end in a very exciting way that it appears to be about, like, maybe 45 minutes before A New Hope starts <laughs> yeah. is the end of our story, which is, like, very... Uh, to me, that, that was actually a huge thrill for how the film turned out was figuring out when, like how, how long. So that was, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a uh, sort of 
metatextual tension that you're that you're kind of residing in throughout your first viewing of the movie right mm -hmm. and also kind of colors how you see a lot of the promotional materials before the movie i remember when the first promotional photos of director krennic came out and people thought that he was like a young grand moff tarkin <laughs> and until it came out in some official sources that you know his character name was was Krennic, he had a different role and and all this i actually did not know that uncanny valley peter cushing was coming until we saw the movie at which point i said okay we're getting cgi carrie fisher then <laughs> Yeah, that did make it seem more than likely. Especially when CGI Peter Cushing wasn't just in one scene for five seconds. He was basically a co-star. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was. Like, they've had dead actors resurrected for cameos in movies before, but that wasn't even a cameo. Yeah, they've had dead actors resurrected for a few seconds. Yeah. He's on screen for minutes, like 10 minutes, yeah. maybe. It was ambitious, and I, and I have to say, like, of course, there's a giant internet discussion about whether or not it was terrible CGI. I actually think it was excellent CGI. Um, I didn't actually notice immediately. I was vaguely aware that that guy from 1977 probably didn't look like that anymore. But I, I was not distracted from watching um, and didn't think about solving that that until later because i actually think he was lit great he was textured great they went close to him and far away like it, i think i actually think it was exceptional cgi yeah, yeah i wouldn't even call it uncanny valley peter crushing uh well it only kind of tweaked that for me for a few seconds i'm amazed at how well they did with it really um they... the first time we saw the movie i thought that was just a guy in makeup I was watching it like, wow, the makeup artist really made that guy look like Peter Cushing. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I thought yeah. they used, like, you know, like, prosthesis and, you know, put some padding here and some dark makeup here to make his face look pitted. And I was like, wow, they really made him look like Peter Cushing. That's a good job on the makeup effects, people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what they accomplished with that. Even having the audacity to do close-ups and, like, emoting with that character. And and also part of it is a credit to um, Ben Mendelsohn, the actor who plays director. What's his character's name? Because he was he. They were like, no, no, for real. Like play opposite dead CGI Peter Cushing, and and he really he really does. <laughs> well, they had he a guy. That a lot. They had a guy that acted the role. He just got sure. CGI'd out of the movie and replaced with Peter Cushing. Mm hmm. Sure. No, I. I, I Sure, but um, you know, st still, like I think part of the reason he's he blends in so well is everyone. It's like he's really there. They've done, they've, you know, the actual actors, the real actors, um, made it made good space for him. And to be fair, on the question of of the, the uncanny valley realism aspect of it, uh, the boyfriend did not know he was a CGI character. See. He he did not know Peter Cushing and did not know that he had been dead for many years. He thought that was just a character. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think many folks will buy him wholesale. <laughs> and whoever that was doing the uh, voice acting for him was doing a very good impression too. Yeah, the voice yes. was really good. It was very very good. So to touch back on something that you were saying before, I thought Leia was 100% CGI, and then I was baffled because there's a 
credit to Carrie Fisher in the cast list. So then I was like, is it footage from New Hope that was cut at the time? Like, because I, I thought she looked really good. No, I'm pretty sure that's completely CGI. And then yeah. maybe she did the voice. Carrie has a voice credit, but Carrie has or- like... 30 years of cigarettes, like, the carry that... <laughs> for real, though, no, like, the carry, the carry in Force Awakens has a, to me, a, a very different voice. That's yeah. true. She does She does sound very different. So, I, I don't know, maybe that's some sort of processing done on the voice. And maybe, maybe. maybe it's someone, you know, also doing voice acting as young Carrie Fisher, and she gets a credit in the main cast because she's still alive. Well, was she credited in the cast, or was it just like a, you know, thanks to Carrie Fisher for letting us use her likeness? I'm pretty sure it was cast, but I I can't swear to it. Because they did, you know, they did use her likeness on this character, so... Yes, of course. Um, IMDB says she had the thanks. I saw that at the end of the credits. I wasn't sure if she was also in, in the cast, but... In, okay. the, in the special thanks, there's Carrie Fisher and a special acknowledgement for the estate of Peter Cushing. Because you know, they, they have to handle who gets paid how. <laughs> yeah. And that one, I, I noticed the Leia appearances is very brief, which maybe does suggest a lot of CGI involvement. It was thrilling to see her, though. I was kind of surprised they ended it that way, because I did not... I mean, as soon as you saw a story synopsis, you knew what was going on and you knew where this was in relation to New Hope. But I did not expect this movie to end, like, literally ten minutes before New Hope began. Yeah. Right? That was super exciting. Like, the idea that the handoff was that tight, like, through that broken door, that Vader was up their ass, super physical... That was the one place where I had a bit of a quibble with how well this would sync up with the story as presented in New Hope. Because in New Hope, they're all, like, completely denying everything. We don't know anything about any plans. We don't know anything about any rebellion. We're not involved in the rebellion. I'm part of the Senate. This is my senatorial ship. We're on a mission of mercy. We don't know anything about a rebellion or plans. You got the wrong guy. And yet, in Rogue One, Vader is literally standing there ten feet away, watching that ship leave the site of a rebellion attack on an Imperial installation. See, that line in New Hope was always bullshit, and I just think it's funny now that it's, like, super obviously bullshit. Well, it was always bullshit. You always knew they were trying to bluff their way through it, but now they just look stupid for trying to bluff their way through it. I mean, it was always sort of analogous to the guy on Cops who's like, you know, what? I don't know what you're talking about, officer. I don't have any marijuana in this car. But now it's like the guy who's like literally puffing smoke out of his mouth as he says, I don't have any marijuana in this car. Well, she, she's trying to get through with diplomatic immunity, right? Like Joss Ackland and Lethal Weapon 2? Well, almost like Joss Ackland and Lethal Weapon 2. But also, with the emphasis that some of the characters in this movie place on public relations and what the Senate knows. 
You know, <laughs> Mon Mothma at one point says to Jin that they're going to uh, uh, rescue or extract Galen Erso and have him testify to the Senate about the existence of the Death Star project. And then Vader tells Krennic that they lied to the Senate about the explosion on Jeddah so that they don't know about the Death Star. Because apparently what the Senate knows and does still matters. Or people like to think it still matters. And so, at the beginning of New Hope, Leia is trying to bluff her way through on diplomatic immunity. She's trying to bullshit her way through it. But she's also saying... I'm a senator, and if you arrest me, the Senate is not going to like it. And, as we see later on in New Hope, the Emperor just slices through that Gordian knot. Yeah. Which is also a pretty dark lesson in the operations of fascism. Because this, <laughs> this is 20-some years since the Emperor took over the Empire... And, you know, they still have a Senate, and, and it, there are new senators elected, and they do things, and, you know, they hold hearings and have testimony, and people think it matters. But, meanwhile, the Emperor is running the Empire. So, dark messages for dark times. Well, Rome still had a Senate for, like, 500 years after Julius Caesar took over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, relevant political themes. Something else that stood out to me about this movie is the way that the Empire and the Imperial forces really, like, palpably hang over everything that happens. Especially on Jeddah, where there's literally a Star Destroyer hanging over the city in precisely the way that bricks don't. <laughs> Kudos to you, sir. But, like, in almost everything that the characters are doing, there are stormtroopers around every corner waiting to pounce on them. There are spies. There's Director Krennic flying everywhere that our heroes go. The Imperial forces, like, like hang over everything in a way that I don't think was really depicted that much in New Hope. Right, because the stormtroopers are uh, mostly on the Death Star and in the Star Destroyer. Like they're they're not. We don't see them on planets as much. Well, you were just gonna say about the two that are in Mos Eisley. Yeah, even in New Hope, they have a checkpoint in Mos Eisley. They have a checkpoint, but for the most part, everyone's going about their business on this desolate desert planet in the ass end of space. They still have a squad of stormtroopers checking people out in this shitty little shit town. Only when they're looking for something. Well, that's true. They are looking for something. You know, it seems like Jabba mostly runs that place. There are a lot of cool references to the art in Return of the Jedi that I noticed, especially when they're in that holding cell on Jeddah. There's a lot of things that reminded me of the way they designed the gates and stuff in Jabba's palace. And yeah, yeah and, and during some of the aerial shots, the establishing shots on Jeddah, some of the buildings look just like you know Jabba's palace and some of the buildings on Tatooine. I was also thinking about the conflict in Syria, like the government imposing higher and higher levels of rules on a place and it gets more and more heated and there are curfews and everyone needs papers and then eventually it descends into the situation we just had in Aleppo last week, you know, a very violent purging of certain groups in order to control the remaining. Like the way that they filmed it and the energy they put in it reminded me of a lot of modern conflicts or examples of occupation. 
Yeah, definitely. And Tarkin, Governor Tarkin, in this movie, he's not yet Grand Moff. I guess that happens in the ten minutes between movies. <laughs> <laughs> and and Governor Tarkin is very freewheeling with the ability to just wipe out whole places instead of dealing with their bullshit. Well, he's sort of drunk on the power of the Death yeah. Star, which is consistent with how he acts in New Hope. Absolutely. Although, the way that it's presented in this movie is a lot more hard-hitting. I mean, this is pretty cynical for a Star Wars movie. and It's, it's very it's, dark. It's, yeah. it's pretty gritty for a Star Wars movie, too. Well, it's the first Star Wars movie that's actually a war movie. Yeah. You know, the others are all, like, flashy space battles and heroic daring-do. This is actually kind of a war movie. Yeah, one of the things that I think made the prequels so tonally off was that they weren't really doing the same genre that the original Star Wars movies were doing. The original Star Wars movies, like you said, were very flashy, were very pulpy, were, were working in that sort of old school, like, Flash Gordon grain and all that. They're kind of laser beam swashbuckling. Uh, exactly. Lots of swashbuckling. Whereas the prequels are about the taxation of trade routes. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the nitty-gritty details of the rules of conduct for a Jedi and all of this, like, bullshit that clouded everything. Yeah, and the romance stuff they put in for Anakin and Padme. God help us all. Which, oh, <laughs> they, they got everywhere. <laughs> Dude, I did not need to know that. Oh, oh, oh wow. Uh, and, and, and so they really felt tonally off, and, and, and off in terms of genre to an extent. I'm reminded of something about this being a war movie. I remember thinking when I watched A New Hope, why are we scared of them? Like, they have the weapon, and, you know, they did that one thing on Aldron, but can they really be everywhere at once? Like, how big of an organization is it and everything? So I didn't quite fully understand, but, but here Rogue One gives us the context that the Empire has been in power for a while, and this development of a super weapon is actually like the straw that's breaking the populace's back in terms of tolerating them. So it's the end of a long oppression story instead of just sort of like a wacky sci-fi uh-oh the way that they started up in A New Hope. Yeah, this one is still a different genre than than the sort of flashy, happy-go-lucky, for the most part, swashbuckling adventures uh, that we all fell in love with, with with the Star Wars movies. But unlike the prequels, it really, really works doing a different tone and a different genre of story in the same universe. They They really... They really go for it. There is a lot of death in this movie. They really do go for yeah, it. Yeah, do you want to talk about the deaths now? Well, let's talk about it in terms of like the tone of the movie. You know, usually in a Star Wars movie, they'll shoot a bunch of stormtroopers and, you know, the Ewoks will conk them over the head with with rocks and stuff, but you don't get a lot of death. This movie just this once, everybody dies. Yeah, I mean, the the deaths are pretty Looney Tunes in the um, original trilogy. If they are even deaths, like, they keep it pretty squarely PG. People are falling over with no bloodshed, and, you know, did they get up and leave later or what? And they, they, they have deaths without ambiguity. 
I have yeah. a fistful yeah. in this movie. I mean, in, in, in a Star Wars movie, in most Star Wars movies, the people who die are generally just the father figures. You know, Obi-Wan dies, Yoda dies, Anakin redeems himself and dies, Qui-Gon dies. And like you said, Elena, they're kind of antiseptic. Yeah. You know, you know the, the lightsaber is a good narrative device for cleaving someone's head off with no blood. Because <laughs> it just yeah. cauterizes everything. But <laughs> in this movie, there is pain. And there is a loss on, on a scale. I would actually argue with that. Because the pain is all of, like, unnamed tertiary characters. All of the major characters introduced in this movie, they all die, but they all die the exact same way. They all sort of accept that they're going to die and have this sort of, well, I've accomplished my mission so I can leave this world in peace and I accept my imminent death. And that's fine, well, you can do that for one or two people, but they do that for everybody. They're warriors, though. They're soldiers. Like, you, we, don't, we don't see that all the time in film. Like, they, all, they escape by the seat of their pants. That's, that's what happens the whole every other franchise. Yeah, but soldiers they... just get shot. Soldiers don't have time to reflect on their life and be satisfied with what they've accomplished. The soldiers just fucking die in a split second. Well, not, not in movies. I mean, like I said, you could do that with one or two people. They do it with everybody. They do it with the pilot. They do it with the mystical Chinese warrior. They do it with the mystical Chinese warrior's brutish sidekick. They do it with Jin and Diego Luna. And uh, Forrest Whitaker, too. They do it with Forrest Whitaker. Thank you for reminding me. Every single one of these people doesn't fight to avoid their death. They embrace their death and walk straight into their death and accept their death. Every single one of them. Well, that's... You can't do that with everybody. I don't know. I think it's okay because of the, the wider message. Like, they were doing it to bring down the Empire. They were doing it because the the tiny little step they were going to make on the path to bring down the Empire was worth more than their lives. I, I'm actually kind of moved by that. that. And that is exactly what the character arc is for so many of these characters where Jin has this whole arc of not caring about galactic politics at all. There's the scene with Forrest Whitaker where, you know, he says, you know, are, are you, can you live with the Empire's flag waving over your head? And she says, well, that's fine if you don't look up. You know, she's content to ignore politics and just survive until she is inspired to a greater purpose. The pilot who defects is inspired to this greater purpose by Galen Erso. Diego Luna is an assassin and a spy and a saboteur and is inspired to greater purpose by Jin after she's inspired to greater purpose. So, I mean, you can he make the... He was already on the greater purpose. He, he was in the Rebellion, but... He has this whole character arc of trying to make the terrible things he's done mean something. You know, he has straight-up murdered people. He has been a spy and a saboteur and all these things, and he decides when everybody signs up for the Rogue One mission against the Orders of the Rebellion to help the Rebellion. Uh, he decides that this is what it's going to mean. You know, I've been doing all these things that I've tried to wipe from my conscience and I've been all stoic about it because I'm a soldier and that's what I do and this is what it's going to mean. It means I can do this. 
Well, he says explicitly that the reason he's done all these things is because the rebellion ordered him to. Because mm -hmm. he supports the rebellion, he he is loyal to the rebellion, and the rebellion gave him an order, and he followed the order. And so it's sort of a big step for him, where the rebellion doesn't want to fight, the rebellion wants to cower and hide. And so he explicitly goes against his orders. You know, he's, like you said, he straight up murdered people, because that's what he's ordered to do, but now... He has now learned to put the ideals of the Rebellion and the purpose of the Rebellion ahead of the orders he's receiving from the Rebellion. He's now loyal to the ideals, not just loyal to the hierarchy. And in movies, it's always better when you go against your hierarchy because the hierarchy never knows what's best. Yeah, Mon Mothma asked for his badge and his gun, but she can't take him off this case. <laughs> And, and that sort of rebel hierarchy is something I think was kind of interesting, too, because they were always called the Rebel Alliance, but I don't think we ever saw them as an actual alliance before, with different people with different viewpoints kind of in a council. You yeah, know? like, way more politically diverse even within themselves than we think when we see them later. Yeah, it's an actual group of people who debate on what course of action to take, which isn't really the way the Rebels were ever presented before. Well, that's because all we ever saw of the Rebels before were military briefings. Yeah. Like, one briefing in New Hope and one briefing in Jedi and, like, an, an emergency evacuation in Empire. That's all we ever saw of the Rebel Alliance. Yeah, and, like, I was very interested in the um, idea that Forrest Whitaker, I can't remember his character's name at all. Um, but, like, the alliance was too conservative for him. You know, he, he took a splinter group. Um, the politics of that was very interesting. And I think they may have had more for him that did not make it into the final cut because they set up such interesting things for that character. Like, when Mon Mothma says that he's caused a lot of trouble. Of course, we see that in on the moon, on Jeddah, um, an example of that. But just, he ended up dying at the end of Act 1, essentially. He was not around as long as I thought he'd be, based on the setup. Yeah, well, Jin kind of runs through all her father figures in this movie, right? You know, Saw Gerrera dies at the end of Act 1. Thank you, and, Saw Gerrera. And then Galen Erso dies at the end of Act 2, and then she dies at the end of Act 3. <laughs> so you're saying she's her own father figure? Uh... I, I wouldn't like the implications if I had said uh, Diego Luna in that sentence. No, I mean, she, they reference her father right before they pass. He would have been proud. He's there. I mean, he's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that line didn't really ring true for me, considering it's the guy who was getting ready to murder her father like 30 minutes ago. Who is the one bestowing upon her the the knowledge that her father would be proud of her? Like, what the fuck do you know? He had his mind changed about the situation, and I would say assassinate, not murder. I mean, it was a political move. It, it was a political move, a last ditch hail mary to stop the completion of the of the weapon. I would argue that assassination is merely a subset of murder. Oh, sure. It's, yeah, a type, it's a type of murder, not not a murder. I think it's morally slightly different than other kinds of murder, but sure. I found Forrest Whitaker's character interesting because I didn't know the Guerreros had any Jewish cousins. <laughs> Saul Guerrero. I never heard of that before. Yeah, you think he used the Guerrero special on a lot of uh, stormtroopers? 
I would love to see him give a gory bomb to a stormtrooper. I liked how when you're in the Empire and you're maimed, you get a Darth Vader suit, but if you're the head of a Splinter faction, you have, like, parts that have been recovered from droids and, like, a gas mask, because it looks identical to the to the gas masks on the Millennium Falcon in The Force Awakens. <laughs> you have that, like, strapped onto your thing with, like, a, a you know, a garbage tie. Um <laughs> If you've been maimed <laughs> and you need oxygen. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a particular sort of paralleling between two characters that I did not expect. I did not expect Forrest Whitaker to become shitty Darth Vader. He's more machine now than man, twisted by paranoid delusions. <laughs> twisted and radicalized. And that's, that's interesting, right? Because the mainstream of both of their political parties thinks they're weird. Like... That's something I'm actually missing from um, where I see him discussed online. But in A New Hope, when we see Darth Vader, they like low-key make fun of him for being so quote-unquote spiritual. You know, like he's that one weird kid, you know, even though he's the Empire's enforcer and obviously has a close relationship with the Empire. Like the mainstream political dudes and generals and officers um, in the Imperial Army think that he's weird. I absolutely want to talk about the uh, use of the Force in this movie and the way that it tracks with the use of, th of the Force throughout the Star Wars movies. But I think that we will do that after we take a quick break to pay the bills here on our podcast network. We will see you then. consideration paid for by the following voice of ring of honors kevin kelly here i just want to make sure you're all subscribed to all of our great feeds here at place to be nation now it's really easy to do just head to itunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search for and subscribe to the place to be nation wrestling feed place to be nation pop feed pro wrestling only feed and of course the kevin kelly show feed which includes the full archives of my podcast Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And of course, as always, enjoy all the great action of Ring of Honor Wrestling and everything presented to you on placetobenation.com. Place Nation's JT Rizzero here, and I want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceTomination.com, and we offer them to you across two great feeds. On the PlaceTomination Wrestling feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast with our famous Vintage Wall pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current-day wrestling with the smash hit clotheslines and headlines, our steady veteran main event, and the beloved monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on all pro wrestling super shows. We live wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse, the always contentious Dangerous Alliance podcast, and Survey Says, a fun look back at the good, bad, and ugly of WCW. On our very popular Place of Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, NBA Team, Lucha Undead, Geek and Sassy, and a veritable podcast heaven for comic fans with hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both of those feeds on iTunes and rate and leave feedback for us as well. All of these shows plus others available at PlaceNation.com. 
where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. Be sure to support our site by using placemanation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping, and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault refresh ebooks via the links on the right-hand side of our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Rockford Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, thehistoryofwrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. Placemanation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. The PWOPTBN feed has changed its name. Now it will be known simply as Pro Wrestling Only, so it should be easier to find and indeed to say. All of your favorite shows are still here, including Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, Titans of Wrestling, Tag Teams Back Again, This Week in Wrestling, and many, many more, including our full archives of tremendous content. So make sure you subscribe to the Pro Wrestling Only feed today. still talking about Rogue One colon a Star Wars story and we are talking about the Force. Now one of the things that I like about the way they use the Force in this movie is it's still kind of that new agey thing that it was in the 70s. That really grew out of a lot of the new age movement of the time and I think the way that Shira Imwe's character relates to the Force really kind of dials back into that after some other uh, tonal shifts that were taken with the uses of the Force in some of the other movies. Uh, Scott, what, what did you think of that one? You mean the Force is a mystical power and not a count of mitochondria? Yeah, exactly. I I am very conflicted about this guy. On the one hand, he might be my favorite character in the movie, and he has all the best scenes. On the other hand, I'm not thrilled that he is basically your bog-standard mystical Chinese warrior. That is fair. I mean, even the blind mystical Chinese warrior who is just so damn mystical that he can fight anyway. (laughs) But he is the coolest character in the movie and has all the best scenes. Yeah, and it's interesting. He has his ride-or-die sidekick, so that makes it a little bit different in presentation. And I like that it's two Asian actors from different places, so that it feels luxurious in such a white Hollywood um, to see not not only multiple Asian characters, but like multiple ethnicities of, of Asian characters. And yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Scott, that it's kind of leaning pretty hard on, on a stereotype or a trope, but they are really great to watch. Like you say, all the best scenes. 
The one question I had about the sidekick, what's his name? Maze? Baze Malbus. Baze Malbus. Why does he have such a better gun than every fucking one else? Including the entire Imperial Army. Because he's willing to carry around a backpack to power it. <laughs> True, it was pretty Ghostbusters-y. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's already a book about this. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. There's probably a prequel novel about each one of these characters. That is all information that I'm glad is there for the fandom, but isn't as deep as I get on these things. So I'm sure... Yeah, also, there's that weird thing where they were hanging out on Jetta, and when we run into them, Diego Luna is, is like, those are the former Kyber temple guards, and they're they're weird now. And so there's, like, so, yeah, I actually, I would read that novel. Like, how did they end up on Jetta? Yeah, the, uh, the Guardians of the Wills which is a fan service thing to bring in in the first place. I, I believe in Lucas's first drafts of Star Wars back in the 70s, it was said to be from the Journal of the Whills. Oh, wow. Okay, never mind. Yeah, that's it was a deep, in reference that, land. That's a deep cut. <laughs> that, that is a deep cut. It was, kind of a, it was kind of a framework like Bilbo writing his book in Lord of the Rings. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Which obviously got edited out pretty long before the movie actually got made. It was just sort of one of the mystical elements that was in it. So that is a pretty deep pull to put in this movie as... I'm assuming, I haven't read their backstory novels, but I'm assuming like the Guardians of the Wills maybe tried to guard some of the Jedi temples after the Jedi got wiped out. Because that's what they're doing on Jedi, right? They're taking all the kyber crystals out of the last remaining Jedi temple that had them to power the Death Star lasers. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of... That's a bit of a stretch when you're saying that you're using the crystals that used to power a lightsaber and you're now powering a laser that can destroy a planet. Like, wouldn't you need a much larger crystal than anything that would fit in a lightsaber? I mean, Star Wars doesn't pass any actual science tests, so I'm okay with that. Well, <laughs> for, for one thing, that's not really what, what Star Wars is about, is passing those, those science tests. But also... Are kyber crystals going to be this movie's mitochondria, or whatever the hell? But also, you saw in the canisters, when they blew up the Stormtrooper tank, that those are some pretty big crystals in there. Those are much bigger than a lightsaber. That's true. And I assume if you put enough of them together, it's like it's like hooking together 17,000 PlayStations to run a supercomputer, you know? <laughs> you could use crystal focuses in series? In series, yes. <laughs> you make a raid with all of the crystals, and it adds up to a Death Star super laser. Do you know... Before I forget this, sort of related to the Death Star laser being related to a lightsaber... I don't know if this is true of all of them. I'm not that familiar with the Star Wars novel series that was wiped out of continuity by The Force Awakens. But when they're going through the classified files trying to find the Death Star plans, one of the files they like flip past really quickly is Project Darksaber, which is from one of the Jedi sequel novels that was published back in the 90s. There was a book called Darksaber, which was basically about an Imperial splinter group trying to build another Death Star laser. And they decided not to build the giant spherical space station. All they built was the laser itself. 
and so they called it the Darksaber because it was just the column that was the laser. That's one of the novels that was published in the 90s, the post-Jedi novel series. So I'm kind of curious if those other classified projects they're scrolling through, if any of them are also references to novels. I would assume that that is a primo place to put some of your deep cuts. Yeah, that's another pretty deep cut. Like I said, I only recognize the one, but I am by no means an expert on the Star Wars novels. I didn't read nearly as many of them as I have Star Trek novels. So, But that name jumped out at me. But to get back on the point of the Force, this is interesting because the Force was barely in it. Well, it was kind of it was kind of a background element, right? It, it it it's the sort of thing which is treated exactly like it was in New Hope, where there are some people who take it seriously as a discipline or a religion, and some people see it as a cute slogan like the Rebel Alliance, and there are some people who don't know about it and don't care. Which kind of makes sense, even just 20 years after Kiadi Mundi was running around with his lightsaber all over the galaxy. Because, again, this is how information works sometimes under a fascist regime. Where it's not something that the fascist regime ever talks about publicly, although obviously it's being run by a couple of Sith Lords. But it's it's not something that they allow to be in the public consciousness anymore, and so it fades from memory even within a generation. You know, the the collective memory is in the process of forgetting, and we see by the time of The Force Awakens how much more the collective memory has forgot. And so I kind of like the way that different people have different perspectives on The Force, and a lot of them just don't care. Well, why would they? It has no impact on their lives. Exactly. The practitioners have been wiped out for 20 years. Did you... Oh, and it, it helps me understand that the, being Force-sensitive is actually probably relatively rare, because in the original trilogy, um, tons of the characters that we pay attention to are Force-gifted. In this one, there aren't that many. It helps me understand, again, why the Empire, like, the, the main dudes in the Empire don't want to say that it's, like, an exercise in the power of the dark side. They want to say it's a strategy of political control. It's a different mood about the Force in this one, for sure. If we accept the prequels as <laughs> existing... Uh, what do we have to? <laughs> According to the prequels, the Jedi apparently kidnapped or somehow acquired Force-sensitive people at the age of, like, one to begin training them up. I mean, you see Yoda leading a class of, like, two- or three-year-olds before right. Anakin comes in and murders the whole class of two- or three-year-olds. And that was 20 years ago. So, in theory, there should be no Force users left younger than 23 to 25. Otherwise, they would have been in the Jedi Temple when Anakin went and murdered them all. Yeah. Well, we see there's our two... Well, really, well, just our one, because his sidekick isn't Force-gifted. Our friend, whose name I don't remember, uh, <laughs> the Blind Warrior, there's him. They make reference to Obi-Wan and Kenobi, but don't name him. And that's it. Well, one of the things I appreciated about Chirrut's character, actually, is that... They don't actually say that he's Force-gifted at all. He believes right. in the and Force. Like, right, and, and uh, Jen is like, is that a Jedi? And they're like, no, there aren't any Jedi. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. Like, he believes in the Force, and he puts his faith in the Force, 
And, you know, the Force probably likes him because it makes all the Stormtroopers miss him while he's going over to, to flip the switch. But I think that was a better decision than it would have been to have him be Force-sensitive and, like, figure out in that moment how to Force-push the switch. Right. Which was, no, which was something... No, I'm so glad they didn't do that. Yeah, that would have been horrible. I mean, that, that was definitely something that I thought could be coming as that scene was coming up in, in the movie. When the one guy, the one just normal guy, said, I'm going to go flip the switch, and then immediately got killed. <laughs> and they cut to cheer it, and I'm like, okay, now he's going to figure out his force gifts and flip the switch from there. But no, he went out and died. Because everybody has to go out and die. I liked it, though, because we hear his little mantra again, I'm the force of forces with me. Which we've heard, and it was like, sounds like a crazy person's rant, and then they describe it as a prayer when they're in jail, and then we hear him saying it other times. So it's like, the nature of that little chant um, changes throughout the story. So by the time we reach the last use of it, the falling of the, the warrior and his sidekick running out, out to him, I'm very moved when he starts saying it, because he hasn't said it at all up until that point. It's just what his companion always said. Similar to your expectation of the Switch, I was almost disappointed when he died and his body didn't vanish into the Force like Obi-Wan and Yoda did. Interesting, I didn't even notice. Like, the way that he was going on about the Force and repeating his mantra of I am one with the Force and the Force is with me as he was dying, I was almost expecting that to happen. And yeah, that would have been different. That would have tugged on the different genre thing because this is a, a super gritty war movie, beaches in Normandy situation for most of it. Yeah, that's that's something that that I hadn't considered about that particular decision. Would that have kind of pulled away from the tone of the movie a little too much? I think it might have. I think that's why they put the force on the back seat pretty hard, is so that they could have this other. To me, they, this is extreme. Like, given that it's sci-fi, the depiction of the technology and the way the battles play out is very close to our world. Like, it's way more realistic. And I say that even watching them use the Death Star a few times, <laughs> the other aspects of it, like how they're flying the ships and like the way they have to change their strategy in real time to deal with different obstacles and the entire situation around the gate and like how do you storm a gate, like all the different strategy they employed. There's just a lot more detail than there is in other parts of the Star Wars franchise. Tell me if I'm just imagining things, but I noticed this both times we watched the movie. And I was looking carefully for it the second time we saw it. Jin's mother, in the sequence in the beginning, when she leaves Jin and goes back to confront Krennic and the black stormtroopers, she's wearing Jedi robes. Huh. The those robes that they do have uh in Galen too, I think, in that scene are very reminiscent. Yeah. Well Galen is just wearing like a robe, but she literally has the tan crisscross thing and then the dark brown robe over it. She's wearing the same thing that Obi-Wan wears throughout this trilogies. The same thing that Qui-Gon wears, the same thing that like every Jedi other than Anakin Skywalker in clones and sith wears and she has her kyber crystal necklace conveniently lightsaber sized that she gives Jin in the beginning 
Which almost confuses me. Like, why doesn't she use any force sensitivity or force powers or a lightsaber? Or why does she just stand there and get shot? Why is she using a blaster? Well, it's a much less civilized weapon for much less civilized times. Yeah, that's inter- that that's an interesting detail there, Scott. I mean, I was specifically looking for that the second time we saw it, just to like make sure I wasn't imagining things or misinterpreting things, and I am like 99% sure she's wearing Jedi robes. I don't know. Is that also cultural, more widely cultural? It's hard to say, but you're right, the color is just the same. That wouldn't be very deep cover, though, if she was a Jedi (laughs) and she she was married to one of the lead Imperial scientists and engineers. Well, I guess the cover is that they're living at the ass end of space as the only inhabitant on planet Ireland. Well, that's only recently. There's the whole flashback scene where they're living on the planet when he's designing the Death Star. Well, maybe she wasn't wearing robes at that point. <laughs> yeah, there's seeing old Mads Mikkelsen in the uh, Imperial uniform tugged at the heartstrings for some reason. Speaking of Imperial uniforms, as far as I can tell, the only person we ever see dressed like Director Krennic is Director Krennic with that like sort of white blouse with the built-in cape. That he mm-hmm. wears. I mean, compared to all the other Imperial uniforms, they're just like gray jackets. And he's got this like stark white blousy shirt with a cape built into it. And he's the only one that wears that. It makes me think that like he designed that for himself to make himself look more impressive. Kind of like William Rehnquist when he was Chief Justice and he added like gold bars to the sleeves of his robes just because he could and no one could tell him not to. Well, Mm. Director Krennic is very full of himself and would want to stand out in a crowd. Yeah. Yeah. I like the contrast. Although, really, I'll take anyone with a cape. (laughs) Yeah, but half the fun of a cape is when you dramatically wave it off and it flaps through the wind as you whip it around yourself. Actually, having a cape as an Imperial officer, is that just sucking up to Vader? Maybe. I mean, it's interesting. He he clearly wants favor with Vader and, by extension, favor with the Emperor. Yeah, that's that's something else, along with all of the fanservice-y nods and references and cameos and sometimes non-cameos. I was a little surprised we didn't get Ian McDermott at some point. I mean, maybe that would have been over the top. That's my that's my question that, that I was wondering about, about all of this stuff, is whether it was over the top. Maybe shoehorning the Emperor in, in and among all of the kind of competing interests and squabbling that some of the Imperial officers are doing. I mean, just as much as the Rebel Alliance is kind of weakened by the uh, squabbling and debate of its internal members, the em- the Empire is too, because Krennic is planning his own agenda and yeah. trying to suck up to everyone above him and trying like hell to get someone to give a good word on him to the Emperor. <laughs> I'm I'm glad they didn't show him to us, actually. I think there was a very small amount of time they could get away with showing us Vader, I think, without risking upsetting the entire thing. And I think they did it just right. I think it's just enough Vader. And I think maybe that's all they could really do without it being really jarring and, and as you say, over the top. Well, l- let's talk about Vader a little more, because... <laughs> One of the things that I think did tip into over-the-top territory a little 
was Darth Vader making puns. <laughs> Did he make a pun? As he was force choking Krennic, he told him not to choke on his aspirations. Oh, yeah. Is that a double pun? Don't choke while I'm choking you and also aspirate? <sighs> oh, that's bad. <laughs> oh, I'm, oh, I gotta get over that. <laughs> You're the English major. I think you would have noticed that. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, th that I thought tipped over a little bit. Also, I want to talk about generally just, just the uses of Vader in this movie. Also, in the context of what I was saying before about kind of taking things from later in the franchise and using them in an earlier time period. I mean... Vader's characterization here is very much his characterization in Empire and Jedi, where he is basically the biggest badass in the galaxy. As opposed to New Hope when he has to kowtow to Tarkin. Now, I would assume that that's because he doesn't share any scenes with Tarkin in this movie. He's always on his Star Destroyer, on his planet base wherever that actually is i don't know if it's actually on mustafar or it's some other volcano planet i was wondering that this when krennic goes to visit vader is that the same lava planet i from was Return wondering that Sith? too i was wondering that too and they didn't name it which pissed me off because they spend so much time naming all the other fucking places we went to yeah every time they go to a planet they pop its name on screen except for that one yeah i was waiting for it too so that we could confirm I was wondering if there was, like, some distinctive architecture we were supposed to recognize, but I don't recognize it because I saw Revenge of the Sith once in 2005. Yeah, that place where Darth Vader had the Tower of Orthanc. Yeah. <laughs> the Tower of Orthanc with a river of lava flowing down the side. Um, yes, apparently there are background, behind-the-scenes materials that say that that actually is Mustafar. That's kind of mean of the Emperor to make Vader spend all his time on Mustafar. Doesn't that place have some bad memories for him? I think the Emperor makes prodigious use of Anakin's bad memories. I mean, that's where he killed his wife and then got three of his limbs cut off. Suffered his most humiliating defeat. Was burned alive by lava. Yeah, and well, yeah, just make your office there, Darth. Yeah, and now he sits around in a Bacta tank there. <laughs> I mean, he's only powerful when he's enraged, right? Yeah, exactly. That's how the dark side flows. That was kind of a bold choice, too, to have the first view we get of Darth Vader be of scarred-up Sebastian Shaw in the Bacta tank. Right. <laughs> like, mostly obscured, obviously, and then they do the whole grandiose reveal where his shadow is three stories tall and he's coming in out of the light, just a silhouette. Really, really making the moment as big as they possibly could after showing him in his kind of weakened state. Something about yeah. Vader didn't look right to me throughout that entire scene. Like, the costume didn't look quite right. The suit looked like it wasn't, like fitting right the helmet didn't look quite right he didn't look quite tall i just everything looked just slightly off about vader throughout that scene see i didn't get that impression i thought vader looked just like vader vader you'd think would be the easiest character to do you can mold the mask 
I don't know. It's just, it's everything in that I scene think, just looks slightly off to me. I think the actor is maybe a little bit of a different build than David Prowse. I think he's narrower shoulders, Scott. He does look different. He doesn't look not like Vader though, because of the costume. But like he does look different than David Prowse. Hmm. And he moves differently too. He moves a he moves a little more easily than Prowse did. He's a little more graceful. I did notice that he tried to do some of the pointing that Vader did a lot of in New Hope. <laughs> yes. So that that little touch, I thought, was really trying to play into the New Hope era a little more. Even while he's the biggest badass in the galaxy, and he's, at the end, doing his biggest badass in the galaxy routine a to the max. That sequence, I thought, was excellent, where you just, like... Yes. Wipes the floor with all of the rebel guards or whatever they were. That was... It was a thrilling ending for the movie. It was. Definitely. And it also... I really loved how that sequence kind of underscored the desperation of the whole effort to steal the plans and get them back to the rebellion. Because at any point in this entire movie... If one person made one different choice, this whole thing fails. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, it's just a mad scramble to stay away from Darth Vader long enough that you can hand this disc off to the next person before dying. And it, it, it's, it's just... It, it's intense. Extremely. Did you hear, as we were leaving the theater at our second viewing, one of the people in front of us was having a conversation, and I heard him say, well, you know, that's what happens when you store your files on physical drives. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> And I'm like, this is what happens when you try to take Star Wars into 2016. Yeah, where's their cloud storage? Yeah. I was talking about this with my friend, and it was like, was it a Star Wars movie, or was it a story about trying to find a Wi-Fi hotspot? Because <laughs> <laughs> their their quest to be able to transmit their large memory-sized file, just like, it kind of sounds hilarious if you write it down that way. <laughs> like... We can't get any throughput through this energy shield. I can't remember my Dropbox login. Yikes! Like it's just you know. <laughs> they they can get uh they can get voice over IP through to call the rebel ships, but only oh if God. they have a really powerful antenna, and they do mm-hmm. not have enough throughput to upload this entire torrent. I mean Death Star plants. <laughs> Uh, oh, wow. why didn't they just put it in their Dropbox? <laughs> <laughs> why didn't Jin just copy it to her Google Drive? <laughs> oh, wow, that's amazing. Well, you see, 40 years later, there's a slightly different context to that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, and then Leia goes and puts the data on her thumb drive and then loses it. Her thumb drive being a half-ton droid? Kind of looks like a thumb, don't you think? <laughs> like like a very sarcastic thumb. You know, who has a cameo of its own in this movie. Yeah, that... This is where my propensity to overanalyze everything is kind of getting in the way. Why are the droids at the Yavin base? Oh, because the Rebel fleet hasn't launched yet to go to Scarif. 
Why are the droids with the Rebel fleet? I thought at this point... I mean, in New Hope, there are Princess Leia's droids. Is Leia there at the Rebel base? Presumably, she was part of the Rebel fleet. I mean, she might have been bouncing around somewhere on Yavin 4. Maybe they were... But she wasn't part of this giant council that meets? I don't know. Maybe she was... There's probably a book about this. (laughs) At least a comic book. (laughs) But, I mean, there are more than enough things you you can think of to kind of fill that in. I mean, she's, you know, off doing Senate business somewhere, but her ship is refueling at Yavin or or something. That's not something that stands out to me as much of an issue. So then how come when they go back at the end of New Hope, do they, like, remember the Yavin base? I mean, are they on the Millennium Falcon going, Oh yeah, we're going back to Yavin. That's great. I like Yavin. I was just there, like, a week and a half ago. Well, I don't know. It depends how much they tell the droids about where they're going, other than just, you know, we're at this base, go refuel at the base. You know, do the droids know what planet they're on? I can't imagine anyone would bother telling R2 and 3PO. It's not like they're navigation droids like K2. R2 isn't a navigation droid? He wasn't navigating that particular ship. Was he in one of the X-Wings that was fighting in in the battle over Scarif? Well, no, because ten minutes later he's getting the disc from Leia. (laughs) So he's he's on the Tandive 4... I don't know, the timeline of those droids is getting increasingly convoluted since they insist on shoving them into every single fucking movie. That was basically just to be cute. Yeah. Meanwhile, we have the other droid in this movie who is extremely cute. Snarky robot for my robot? Sure. Elena, what did you think of uh, K2SO, the paranoid android? I was a little worried about him because... Do robots do sarcasm? That breaks with sci-fi's usual depiction of droids. So I was nervous about him being having too much of a personality, but then, I don't know, I'm okay with him at the end, and then I'm very sad when we lose him, so I guess he won me over. And I like, I really like the shot of him downloading things from the other unit that's just like him, and their little eye lights match. Whether they're, like, flickering on and off in the same way, that was very arresting visual. Well, there's a lot to the emotionality of droids in the Star Wars universe, right? You know, R2 is very sarcastic, uh, we're given to understand. Is R2 sarcastic, or is he just insulting? (laughs) Well, uh, 3PO isn't really sarcastic, he's just kind of high-strung in the extreme. But still, there are all sorts of droids with all sorts of personalities. Well, I think you're missing a word there. I mean, after seeing K2 in this movie, I was sort of glad to ask myself, does every droid in Star Wars have some sort of major personality disorder? I mean, 3PO is clearly suffering from some sort of major depression. He just cannot see the bright side of anything, ever! All he does is point out the negative and the downside and the risk and the potential pitfalls. He just cannot see the good in anything in life, if what he has can be called life. And R2 is, like, rebellious to the extreme. We see him in New Hope, he gets a new owner, and the first thing he does is run away and lead his new owner directly into a Tusken Raider ambush. 
And then, and all he does is like insult people. He insults three PO. He says nasty things about people that can't understand him because all they hear is bleeps and bloops. He mm -hmm. at the at the least little chance he goes charging headlong into the middle of a laser blast firefight, even though he has no ability to defend himself or fight back. But he's charging through because there's a data port he can stick his little data port thingy into. That's all he wants to do is find some strange data port and stick his data port probe into it. Even though there's like 10 million stormtroopers firing laser blasts at him, he's charging straight through. He's got some sort of over-rebellious, over-recklessness. I don't know what the diagnosis would be, but that's clearly not a healthy psyche in that little astromech droid. And then there's K2 who just can't turn off the sarcasm for one goddamn minute. And they're in the middle of a life-and-death situation. They're, they're in the middle of fighting for their lives. They're trying to bluff the Empire and not get blown out of space. And all he can do is snark and sarcasm at all the people around him. It's like, can you be serious for one damn minute? Well, the one time he tries to be serious, he says that these are prisoners that he's taking to prison. <laughs> mm -hmm. I liked that. You know... But, but yeah, so, so given we now have three separate examples, uh, so I have to ask the question, does every droid have some sort of major personality disorder? Is this a fault with the very idea of having droids with sentience, that because they're androids and not actual sentient beings, they all fall into one of these personality disorders? Just like the programming isn't up to snuff, or the programming is very, very good, and their consciousness can't handle the fact that they're not actual beings, they're just droids. Well, th that was one point that I was going to make. You know, AI is hard. So maybe trying to program personality... Uh, it always fails in some way? Yeah, maybe it just goes awry in a lot of ways. You know, that they then limit so that they're not, like, actively dangerous... And, and you see, the Imperial droids that aren't reprogrammed, like K2, are a lot more, dare I say, robotic. Well, yeah, a lot of the droids are just sort of drones. You know, they follow their programming. They don't all display these flamboyant personalities like 3PO and R2 and K2SO. But of the ones that do display flamboyant personalities, we're three for three of major personality disorders. Well, they're all in the Rebellion, too, and the Rebellion is a bunch of misfits anyway. So you're saying that most droids are fine, but these droids are from the Island of Misfit Toys? Sure. They often run into the uh, attempt to stop the Empire at its darkest. <laughs> Alana, what do you make of the droids? Uh, I like them. I like them because it's a, it's an interesting. I mean, they're they're a favorite of the sci-fi genre, of course. But one one thing I like about them is we can learn a lot about human characters based on their relationships with droids in the worlds that they build. Like I, I've seen this note about Ray in The Force Awakens that she uses he and him to talk about BB-8 as opposed to it. And we can kind of key off of how involved the human characters are with their droids to kind of get a read on their sense of humanity or their possible relationship with servitude. Or, you know, there, there's some hints to how the culture works based on how, how characters deal with droids. Like K2 and Captain Andor clearly go way back, but it's not really a true master-servant relationship because K2 doesn't listen to him like a lot of the time. He doesn't wait where he's supposed to wait. 
Yeah, he obviously does not have the uh, protocol droid programming that 3PO has. He's not calling everyone yeah. master. He doesn't have a restraining yeah. bolt. No, 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 no. Who is the King Moonracer of the droid island of misfit toys? Are we doing a whole AU now? <laughs> and by the way, if you want to get into psychological disorders, BB-8 has some sort of attachment disorder. Oh, BB-8. <laughs> Sweet BB-8. That would make sense, because I always imagine BB-8 as, like, a child, as opposed to the other droids. They're all various flavors of adult. Yeah, BB-8 does seem like a child. Very much so, yeah. So it would make sense he would have an attachment disorder. BB-8 is the toy train with square wheels of the Island of Misfit Toys. <laughs> Write your fanfic, people. Send us a link. Uh. <laughs> please, 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 someone do. Do you know they used to... When I was a kid, they put out these, like, children's storybooks. It was like a little record and also a book. And so the record was almost like a radio play. It was like a, an audio drama. And then there was a little, like, you know, 30-page book or whatever that came with it that told the same story. And, and it was complete with this, like, Fisher-Price plastic record player you could play your little 45 RPM story records on. And one of them was a Star Wars thing called Droids, where, like, 3PO and R2 go to, like, the planet of the droids and meet all the droids, and I think, like, the droids want to rescue them from being with the humans, but they want to go back to their humans or something like that. I don't I don't remember the details. Right. I haven't heard this thing since, like, 1982, but... They go to the planet of droids and meet radical separationists, revolutionaries? <laughs> That's some heavy stuff for kids. Well, you know, droids are not treated well by flesh people. Droid liberation theologists? <laughs> I don't know. I have. I, I probably broke the thing in 1982. Well, either you broke it in 1982 or I broke it in 1991. <laughs> I know I broke the plastic record player. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, diversity question in this movie. Now, obviously, whenever a cast for one of these movies is announced and there's a woman in it... Uh, that's going to get a lot of people's dander up. How can we watch Star Wars if the main character is not a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white man? How indeed. Um, Alana, what do you think about how they did with the diversity in this movie? I think they're doing very well, and I am very appreciative of the fact that we get another lady at the helm of the story, uh, much like The Force Awakens. There's this thing where when we have our chorus of white dudes in their art, if you have a non-white dude in a project, then the next project you put out, please make it a white dude again, because we've already tolerated a non-white dude for a whole project, and it's our turn again. I mean, I like that they're just throwing that in um, in everyone's face. We've heard from white dudes for centuries at this point. I think you all can stay in your seats a little longer. So there's that, of course. And then there's just the lovely lack of white people on the screen. Diego Luna isn't white. Our two Chinese friends are not white, of course. Forrest Whitaker's not white. The defecting Imperial pilot isn't white. And we don't... I don't miss him. Who cares? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And they still maintain the Star Wars tradition of everyone in the Empire, all of the Imperial officers, being just, you know, boring-ass white dudes. There's quite a few. You know, all, all of the officers, all of Galen Erso's junior engineers. Well, I don't know if they ever stated it explicitly on screen, but it is sort of accepted within people that follow the fandom. It is sort of accepted that the Empire is very much a humans-only club. Like, they look down mm. on anyone non-human. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's always been the subtext, and probably the text in, in the novels and such. But one of the things that I that I noticed along the lines of the Rebel Alliance scenes and their debates is that a lot of the people who say they're not going to fight and then leave are people of color. There's a black woman who's one character who is against engaging the Empire right now. And so it has the, the kind of unfortunate subtext of having to reduce the people at the Rebel base to the white dudes with 70s mustaches that were there in New Hope. Yeah. Who then go on to take all the credit after Diego Luna and everyone get the plans, and, and then they, go, they get to go blow up the Death Star. Mm. <laughs> yeah, none of the guys at the mission briefing in New Hope are like standing there like, you know, okay, here's the port, and you need to fire a torpedo, and precisely here so it'll travel to the central core and blow it up. I didn't want to go on the mission to get these plans. I wanted to run and hide, but a bunch of people defied orders and went and got these plans, and now we're going to win a great victory. They, they never seem to mention that. Well, at that point, the whole organization kind of has to take it on, right? <laughs> Is that in-universe retroactive continuity? Oh, sure, I wanted to go get the plans, but the council said no. Yeah, I, I was totally going to go with Rogue One, but the, uh, I had to stop and, you know... I was putting together my own secret against orders team when Rogue One just impetuously took off and left us all behind. You know, if Cassian had asked me... <laughs> but by and large, yeah, they, they are really doing better with not just having all white dudes in these new Star Wars movies. You know, it's, it's pretty refreshing. And yeah. for all the people who like to whine about it and make a stink on Twitter, they're all still making a billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Force Awakens with a black guy and a woman leading the movie. It only was the highest grossing movie ever in domestic United States movie grosses. Well, yeah, and, it, and I'm so delighted because it, it's finally disrupting that ancient falsehood that what really locks down a movie and guarantees its success is the presence of a white dude. That, that's that been falsely credited with film success for a long time. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> there's, there's this idea that if you're making a movie for kids that little boys can't be asked to identify with a girl. Well, and there's this pernicious idea that white dudes will only go see movies about white dudes, whereas non-white dudes will go see a movie about a white dude. So you make the movie about a white dude. Yes, because when it's about a white dude, the, the message is that it's about mankind, because white men represent mankind culturally. Like, the default setting of a story is a white dude story. That's what comes to mind. Yeah, anyway, sorry, I could rant for a long time, but yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's fine. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely heartening to see a lot of these pernicious narratives being disrupted. And they didn't put Jin Urso in a gold bikini once. 
no, there's none of that at all. We don't need it, and it's great. There isn't even really a love story. You're you're gonna want. Oh, oh you're, you're gonna want. Are you gonna ask if I want to talk about the love triangle? You do this in all the shows. What love triangle? Uh, Jin, Landor, and uh, that guy is no. really confusing to me. His first name is practically Lando Calrissian, and his last name is the name of a planet from Star Trek. So his character name Andor. is very fucking confusing for me. Calrissian Andor. No, the love triangle is definitely Tarkin, the director, and Mads Mikkelsen. No, the love triangle is Tarkin, <laughs> Krennic, and um, the Emperor's ass. They both <laughs> covet, they both want to kiss the Emperor's ass, and they're fighting each other for the affections of the Emperor's ass. Do not put that image in my head. But then this tall, dark, and handsome bad boy comes and gets between both of them and the Emperor's ass. With him and his big, long lightsaber thinks he can oh, just no. waltz in and take the Emperor's ass away from them. Oh my. <laughs> okay, here's my thing on the romance. And they did, they did this... To an extent, in Force Awakens, and it bugged me in Force Awakens, but they do it a lot fucking more in Rogue One, and it's just, it, it is the worst part of the movie for me. Either have a fucking romance, or don't have a fucking romance. Don't do this sort of half-and-half, half, hinting but not explicit, and deep, meaningful looks into each other's eyes, but don't actually have them kiss, but have them cling to each other desperately as they approach their death, but, but don't actually have them say anything to each other. Don't try to do both at the same time. Either have them develop a romance, or don't have them develop a romance. And if you're going oh. to have them develop a romance, then just have them fucking kiss at the end. And if you're not going to have them develop a romance, then don't have them sitting on the beach, holding hands, clinging to each other as their death approaches, and giving each other deep, meaningful looks into each other's eyes as they ride the elevator. Pick one or the other and just fucking do it. I disagree that there's any sexual tension. I don't think there's any in the whole film. Neither do I, they but they still have... Head, I think it's there's just because they're people about to die. I don't think there's any sexual tension between them either but they still have these scenes where they're staring meaningfully they into each like other's each eyes other. it's hostile it's hostile personally i would rather they not go with the romance just because it's been done ten thousand times and it generally doesn't add anything but if you're going to do it then just fucking do it i don't like this sort of they half did. and half trying to do both thing it just it, 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 ugh, i hate it i don't i don't think they try to do both i think they squarely did not well, there's several scenes I'm viewing very differently than you are then. <laughs> yeah, must be. I'll I'll grant you the elevator scene. That's when they're riding back down after they transmit the data, right? Yeah. Yeah, and they kind of stare meaningfully into each other's eyes, and I didn't get the impression in that moment that what she was thinking was, you almost killed my dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'll give you that scene... I can kind of forgive the scene on the beach because they are just about to die, and so they, you know, hug. By the way, the whole on-the-beach ending, a little too on-the-nose. 
similar to the Nazi emulation in Force Awakens. Star Wars has never been subtle, but it was more subtle than that. Was it? A bit. What do you think the beach is on the nose for, Scott? For... That's literally the name. I forget if it's a book or a movie. It might be both, but it's called On the Beach. It's about a nuclear holocaust. Where is it? Yeah. Oh. The, it's if I remember correctly, and I may be confusing it with a similar book that I read, but I think like the entire world is wiped out in a US USSR nuclear mutual annihilation, and the only mm. place left habitable is Australia. Just because the radiation hasn't reached there yet, but it is going to reach there. And so this, like, one remaining U.S. submarine goes to Australia, and there's, like, a romance between the submarine captain and an Australian woman. But they know they're going to die because the world has been irradiated, and just because they haven't died yet doesn't mean that they're not eventually going to die from that irradiation. Yeah, that was a uh, Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner film. Okay, was it based on a novel, or was it an original film? It was based on a novel. Okay. They all were back then. And and so, yeah, the two of them sitting together on the beach, clinging to one another on the beach with the mushroom cloud in the distance and the shockwave approaching them was just a little too literal an evocation of that idea for me. Oh, okay. See, I was into it because we see the destruction on Jeddah and we... The way the weapon works is it makes this huge shockwave lifting all the matter from the center of the explosion outward. And we see it with rocks, and a tidal wave of rock, which was very cool looking. But then we know what's going to happen to them because we've seen it before, but we haven't seen it before because it's water instead of stone. I liked the callback to the previous... Uh, use of the weapon but it looks different in that way and and i'm okay with them being on a beach because uh of the way they set up that base that it is this weird atolls and like strange sandbars and stuff like there's a lot of beach area yeah judging it on its own i didn't really have a problem with any of it other than what i saw is the implied romantic bits that we talked about before but it just mm. To me, it seemed like they were trying to reference the end of On the Beach, and it was just too on the nose of a reference. Oh, I think they were absolutely referencing that, and the entire, you know, nuclear annihilation genre. But I don't really see that as, as a bad... It didn't really bother me. Maybe this is my own weird thing, and maybe I'm judging it too harshly. I just... I like those kind of references to be just slightly more subtle. Like, not so subtle you would actually call them subtle, but just a little bit more subtle than that. Do you think, would it have been subtle enough for you if they hadn't invented the single reactor detonation of the Death Star, and it instead just had them blow up the planets? And there's a shockwave approaching them, and then the planet disintegrates? <laughs> That might have been something. Actually, yeah, that would have been a little bit more different. And then, imagine that. The entire Rebel fleet is in orbit of Scarif, and the planet disintegrates. And, and, you know, and you know what? I wouldn't have compared that to On the Beach in my head. I would have compared that to Viridian 3. Even if the live-action elements were exactly the same, there's this shockwave and, and the blinding light approaching them, it's just then the planet blows up. 
I don't know. There was that long time to dread and think about them waiting there peacefully, but uh, it, but it's there's no escaping it. So why not wait peacefully? Well, it's, could... just, it's, it's interesting watching. It's interesting watching their um, their escape routes close. I was especially watching them the second time I viewed it. Like maybe it'll be fine, but oh, they lost their pilot. Oh, they lost their ship. Oh, the gate won't open. Oh, they can't. You know, like they're just they're just really backed into a corner. And the idea that they really what what happens when you go on a suicide mission, boys and girls, is actually you die. Like, <laughs> it's only exceptional suicide mission stories that make it to the screen, but actually a real suicide mission, you don't live. You could do the same, you know, watching their Doom approach thing by, like, looking up and seeing the lasers power up on the Death Star. You know, you see the Death Star in the sky, and you see the green glow start to build on the dish, and they and they both mutually realize, "Fuck, they're gonna blow up the planet. We're we're fucked." You could do it that way. One other thing that kind of bugged me again, just being a little too cliche and a little too on the nose, is the whole planet killer eclipses the sun right before it fires its planet killer weapon. They do that all the time with planet killer weapons, but to my recollection, they did not do it in New Hope. Well, they lacked the uh, technology at that point, and they didn't do a scene on Alderaan with anyone watching it approach. So, but they, but they do it with Jeddah, and they do it on Scarif. Both times, the Death Star passes in front of the sun. And both times, it's at exactly the right relative distance to eclipse the sun properly. And both times, it happens to be near high noon when they blow up the planet. So the sun is way high up in the sky for the Death Star to eclipse. And both times, the city happens to be right where they're blowing up. Because they're not just blowing up any random spot on the planet. They're specifically blowing up the city and specifically blowing up the base. And so both times, the sun happens to be in the right spot where they can target that spot on the planet while eclipsing the sun. And why would they bother to do that in the first place? It's just such a cliche. Planet killer blots out the sun before it fires its planet killer weapon. They did the same thing in Babylon 5. They do the same thing all over the place whenever they have planet killer weapons. And it's just so cliche at this point. I wish they hadn't have done that. Well, let it not be said that uh, Governor Tarkin doesn't have a flair for the dramatic. It's not like he's wearing a white blouse with a built-in cape. Oh, but if he did, though. <laughs> he could work it. And, and, and also, one note about the base on Scarif... Which is a terrible fucking nerd note that I don't mean anything serious by, but these are the things my brain does sometimes. A jungle beach environment is not a good place for a data center. <laughs> Can you Im Hashtag accurate. Can you imagine the cooling costs for that thing? That thing should be on the ice planet Hoth. <laughs> You're so correct, Glenn. It hurts. You are so exactly correct. But 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 if it wasn't on a jungle beach planet, then they couldn't have the rebels fight the Battle of Iwo Jima. Well, right. okay, that's fair. Let it not be said that uh, Gareth Edwards doesn't have a flair for the dramatic. <laughs> he certainly does. My goodness. 
Oh, okay. Random comment. Shout out to the visuals, the battle at the end, the ships dropping in and out of light speed, shoving the disabled Star Destroyer into the other Star Destroyer, the whole way the gate looks. All that stuff looks amazing. I'm 100% into it. It really did look cool. Oh, uh, one note about that last battle. I wonder if the uh, the X-Wings trying to fly through the gate that smashed up against the gate when it closed, I wonder if that was a reference to this, like, mythical scene from Return of the Jedi where, like, the Rebel fleet arrived and they didn't realize the shield was still up and some X-Wings kind of crash into the shield. Okay. You know, that, that happened in Return of the Jedi. You just don't see it up close in detail. Yeah, there there was... I remember from my early, early days online, like on Fidonet, BBSs and all that stuff, people ha had these lists of Star Wars deleted scenes and they were, you know, trying to intuit whatever they could about Biggs Darklighter from trading card bios and all that stuff. And there were people talking about a supposed scene in Return of the Jedi with, with the fighters crashing into the shield. So that was something that, that definitely got brought to mind when they actually did it in this movie. Speaking of Biggs Darklighter, why wasn't he one of the X-Wing pilots in this movie? I thought of that both times I saw the movie, because this is taking place like literally 10 minutes before the beginning of, of New Hope. Okay, <laughs> maybe 30 or 60 minutes before the beginning of New Hope, but it's very, very close to the beginning of New Hope. And this is the whole rebel fighter squadron. Why weren't there more familiar pilots? Why wasn't Jess Porkins in there somewhere? Why wasn't Biggs Darklighter in there somewhere? There's not a good answer other than time passes. But time doesn't pass. It's like five days later. <laughs> no, I'm exactly. But like, yeah, f five days narratively. But I mean, they had uh, they had Pignose and his black-skinned furry friend from the Moss Eisley Cantina. They apparently mm. escape Jetta and oh. make it to Moss Eisley in time to meet up with Luke and Ben Kenobi. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't have thrown in a Biggs or Jess Porkins or some other pilot that's recognizable from New Hope. Yeah, there was one pilot that I thought maybe was supposed to be Porkins, but then he died. Yeah. <laughs> so then he wasn't Jess Porkins. <laughs> no, clearly. You said you thought you saw Wedge Antilles in there. I think maybe Wedge was supposed to be one of the people in there. I am not sure. They say the name Antilles. Well, Bail Organa talks to Captain Antilles of the Tantive Four, but I don't think that's Wedge Antilles. Or maybe mm. it is. I don't know. I'm not that up on the Expanded Universe. Maybe people say it is. I don't know. I think Captain Antilles is Wedge's father. Please, please. Captain Antilles is my father. <laughs> I did appreciate seeing Bail Organa. Yeah, me too. You know, there there aren't a lot of good things you you can pick up from the prequels, but uh, bringing in old grizzled Jimmy Smiths, who's been in the rebellion for twenty years, is kind of cool. <laughs> I've talked a lot about the tone of this movie and how they kind of had to mediate that and mediate expectations of what the tone of a Star Wars movie is supposed to be while trying to do all these different things that this movie was doing. What do we think about Jin Erso's stirring speech? I was not a fan. Really? Honestly, me neither. I kind of wanted her to go barging into that meeting and yell at all of the rebel generals for killing her father. 
I'm helping you. I brought you to Saul Guerrero. I brought you to the planet to execute the mission that you kidnapped me into. And you launch a starfighter attack on me and the guy that we're supposed to be bringing in front of the Senate. What the fuck? Yeah, that would have been way better. I'm kind of disappointed that she didn't do that. And the stirring call to action was... I'm using this phrase a lot. It's a little too on the nose. She's supposed to be more cynical than that. She's not going to do a 180 turnaround immediately. Yeah, I would have liked her to take a little squadron at Blaster Point and been like, I have something to steal. You all are going to give me a ship, fly me there, you know, take them all hostage, <laughs> do it against their will. <laughs> like, I wish she would have said, like, I've been told that rebellions are built on hope. Or don't you folks believe that rebellions are built on hope or something like that rather than yes. th full-throatedly yes. endorsing the idea herself? Well, it does yeah. kind of play on the movie trope of the person who literally just joined the cause ten minutes ago telling everyone else what the cause is. <laughs> Ain't no zealot like a convert. Exactly. I just, I don't think she would be turned around that quickly, especially not right after her father died and she just confronted the guy who was ordered by the Rebellion to murder her father. And then the Rebellion did murder her father. I wish she had done something about that. And I don't, I don't think she would have been turned around to this, you know, all gung-ho position that quickly. Well, it's probably something she's been thinking about ever since she talked to shitty Darth Vader. Saul Guerrero? Yes. I mean, it's probably something she's been thinking about. And then when when she saw her father's hologram, and then when she very briefly actually saw her father, I think, you know, those are all things that are going to make a big impression on her. And I, th I think her retort to Guerrera that, you know, it doesn't matter whose flag is flying if you don't look up, that's, that's just kind of emo teen kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I think that's just her putting up screens so that she doesn't have to confront an uncomfortable reality in that moment. And so as she has a little more time while they're in the ship flying around to Edu and then going back to Yavin, I think that kind of sinks in a little more for her. That sinking in isn't something we see in the movie, to be fair. How about, you folks killed my father, and if we don't take advantage of this information, he died for nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And then all of our heroes spend the rest of the movie trying like hell to make sure they don't die for nothing. They all mm -hmm. die, but they try to make sure they die for something. That actually would have played in really well with the way they all die. Yeah. They should have called you, Scott. These are great script revisions. <laughs> I, I just I just think her turnaround was a little too completely 180 and a little too yes. sudden. Like, even if she did turn around and decide, okay, the rebellion is worth it and it's worth fighting for and it's worth dying for, she wouldn't completely change her personality, too. You know? Mm -hmm. Just because yeah. she changed her mind about something doesn't change her life experiences, doesn't change the way she deals with the world, doesn't change the way her mind processes things. She wouldn't be that full-throatedly endorsing the cause. She would, she, would, she would still have the same personality she had at the beginning of the movie, just, you know, different ideals and different goals. Mm -hmm. I wonder where that line from the trailer went. I missed that line. I like that line, and I wish it was in the movie. I like that line a lot. Yeah, the line when she's talking to Mon Mothma and says, you know, this is a rebellion. I rebel. That really seems to capture her character really well. Yeah. 
I missed that line in the finished movie. I wish it was in there somewhere. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff from the trailer that was missing. Yeah, also, what, ha- what happened to that shot of her on the catwalk with the TIE fighter flying up right in front of her? Yeah, yeah. That, it didn't happen either. That was such an impressive shot in the trailer. That seemed like it could be a really like iconic thing in the movie. Can I just say, throughout that entire third act of the movie, when all those starfighters are fighting on the planet inside the shield, every single time one of them got shot, I was waiting for one of those fighters to get shot and crash into the dish. Mm-hmm. Even the second time I saw it, I still, every time something got shot, I'm like, oh, that one's going to crash into the dish and they're going to be fucked. I just kept, I kept waiting for that to happen. Every time someone got shot down, I expected it to happen. Plus, there are laser bolts going around everywhere. Yeah. And they're flying right around that thing, too! I mean, you did see, when they fire the Death Star, that line of fire from the Death Star goes right through the dish. (laughs) So, that one was on target. I was wondering about that. I was wondering if there was, like, a a main base some distance away, and that's why the laser hit so far away, and it took so long for the shockwave to get to them. I didn't, maybe, yeah, maybe they were targeting specifically at the dish, and they couldn't shoot straight down because they had to be way over in front of the sun. (laughs) Before we wrap up here, we here on the Glenn Butler Podcast, Alex Pateki Lar, like to talk about the uh, scores for all of the movies that we talk about because it's a pet interest of mine, and my name's on the door. So let's talk about the music for this movie a little bit. The scoring process for this film was a bit of a bear. Was it? The director, Gareth Edwards, had previously worked with a composer, Alexandre Desplat. I believe they both did Godzilla a couple of years ago. And Desplat was originally hired to do Rogue One and was dumped from the project in September, I believe. Which, considering the release date of the movie, was leaving a very, very short window for a replacement score to be written and recorded and edited to picture. And it always seemed a little strange to have Desplat doing a Star Wars movie. Although Desplat was... I don't know if he was directly, but the only other place I know him from, the only other scores of his that I've heard are his work on some of the later Harry Potter movies, where he also took over from John Williams. He did the last two Harry Potter movies, after other composers had done Harry Potter 4, 5, and 6. I didn't like his work on those at all. There are a couple of tracks and a couple of themes that I like from those, but otherwise they don't really stand out much to me. Desplat is a composer who has made his career more on drama pictures. A lot of Oscar bait dramas you'll see him on. He did The Danish Girl. He did The Girl with the Pearl Earring. He he does a lot of these high-profile drama pictures. He still does some movies in France, too, I think. But mostly drama still. So to have him doing a blockbuster sci-fi action movie and especially a blockbuster sci-fi action war movie, seemed like it would be an interesting fit. I was interested in seeing what he would come up with and kind of cautiously optimistic, emphasis on the caution, because I'm not his biggest fan, but he can come up with a good melody sometimes. Yeah, um, I, I was not cautiously optimistic. I was very happy when they got rid of him and replaced him with the guy they should have hired in the first place. <laughs> well... The guy you think they should have hired in the first place, of course, being Michael Giacchino, who had been widely suspected 
to be waiting on Star Wars whenever John Williams didn't do one. There were rumors here to Timbuktu that John Williams was too old to come back for Star Wars. He wasn't going to come back for Star Wars. Giacchino was going to do Episode Seven, And obviously that didn't wind up happening. John Williams, you know... Uh, John Williams is ageless and immortal. John Williams is ageless and immortal. And you can write music and even conduct an orchestra even when you're old. <laughs> you know, John Williams' process is that he sits down in his studio with a sheet of orchestration paper and a pencil and a piano, and he writes music. You can do that when you're pretty old. And, and apparently when he saw The Force Awakens and had discussions with J.J. Abrams, he, you know, really felt keen on the project. He really fell in love with the character of Rey, he said in interviews. So he was really excited for that. And he uh, just recently uh, started recording some of his music for Episode Eight, a year Yay. before that opens, in contrast to Michael Giacchino being hired for Rogue One in the middle of September. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that a lot of it is Giacchino's first drafts, because they kind of had to be. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of revision time. But still, I liked it a lot. I think, after listening to the album a few times and seeing the movie again, which is why I didn't want to talk about this until we saw the movie a couple of times, I think the score feels a lot more fleshed out than it did when I first saw the movie fresh. It feels very much like a Star Wars score. He absolutely nails a lot of the uh, Williams-esque touches. The way he uses the brass, the way he uses flutes and woodwinds to kind of accentuate establishing space shots is very, very Williams and very, very Star Wars. Like, right at the beginning of the movie, when the movie sort of crashes in, there's no opening crawl or anything, and the score kind of crashes in, there's immediately a wind line that is very very star wars yeah so all, all of the he gets a, all of the little accents right i would say this feels more like a star wars score than some of the prequels well uh yeah yeah well that's that's fair the prequels are very very much written in williams's style of the time which had developed a fair bit in some different directions than his style in the early 80s. And yet when he did Force Awakens, he went back more toward what he was doing from 77 to 83. Well, that was a conscious effort to harken back. But even some of the action music in Force Awakens sounds like the prequels, because that's just how Williams writes action music now. Mm. Um, but he definitely tried to harken back a little more than he did for the prequels. But Giacchino was absolutely getting all of those accents in, making everything sound like Star Wars, the way that the graphic design was making everything feel like Star Wars. It's absolutely a big the part of... The subtitle font, perfect. Yes, yes. Uh, a lot of the visual design was, was right on there. And, and the music was trying to do that too, trying to give you all the subtle cues that, you know, this is Star Wars, this is the universe you're comfortable in. It uses a lot of the same musical vocabulary, um, which is what I mean by the way he uses the, the, the brass at times. And yet he is very, very sparse with using the actual Williams themes, which... yes. I understand the motivation for, and I think it works very well in the first two-thirds of the movie, but the end of the movie, where the whole thing is a huge battle between the Empire and the Rebel Alliance, the Rebel fanfare should have been all over the last third of that movie. I do wish it had kind of been there more. One of the things that Giacchino did that was a little... 
odd was that for this movie, a lot of his new themes kind of double up on concepts that already had themes. Yeah. Like, he has a theme for director Krennic, which is basically the new Imperial theme for this movie. It's used more widely for the TIE fighters and, and all that during the battles. Yeah, it's used for the entire Imperial fleet during the battle. It's not just when Krennic is doing stuff. Yeah, and it is a really catchy march, and it fits right in, again, with the Star Wars musical vocabulary, because obviously the, there was an, an intentional design to limit the Imperial march to Darth Vader. But what he also does in at least a couple of places, he brings back the Imperial motif from New Hope. The, the yes. tune that Williams used for the Empire in that movie before he wrote the Imperial March for Empire. Yeah, that's used twice in the scene on, it turns out, Mustafar, when Krennic goes to see Vader. Uh, when we see him in the back to tank and then when he's talking to Krennic in the next scene. And that is just... Such a pull. That's it's, a deep cut. That is such a deep cut. I, I was when I first got the album, I was I was sitting here listening to it, and I just said out loud, "Man, Jaquito's such a nerd." Because <laughs> uh, there had been speculation about that among people who are interested in this kind of thing. Again, over what I was saying about using aspects from later work in a prequel setting, there were people saying, should he even use the Imperial March? Hmm. But the prequels kind of broke the glass on that anyway. Yeah. But I like the way he sort of strung that needle where he used the Imperial March, but only for Vader. Because originally on the Empire Strikes Back album, that isn't called the Imperial March. It's called Darth Vader's theme. Well, the concert suite is called The Imperial March, parentheses, Darth Vader's theme. Hmm, okay. But, but it was originally more associated with Vader, especially in Empire. And so I like the way that he did it, where he used that theme, but only for Vader. And then he used the Imperial theme from New Hope. Because this is in roughly the same time frame as New Hope. We said several times, the movie ends minutes before New Hope begins. So I liked that as like a framing, you know, to sort of put you in the right time frame and frame of mind of using the theme from New Hope. And then he has this new Imperial theme that he uses for the Empire in the Battle, which, like you said, it's a fine theme. It's just sort of redundant because there was already an Imperial theme. Yeah, that's the thing about... And that's not the only time he does that. There's also a new Rebel fanfare that pops up three or four times... You could say that the Guardian of the Wills theme, as it's called on the soundtrack, or uh, Chirrut Imwe's theme, is kind of taking the place of the Force theme in a lot of his scenes. Uh, he has the Force theme a few times in the Yeah, movie. they do use the Force theme occasionally. They, they, they do use the Force theme several times, but there's also a kind of spiritual theme that Chirrut has that's called Guardian of, of the Wills on the soundtrack that kind of takes that place as well. Which, I believe that one is the one that starts with the first two notes of the Anakin and Padme love theme. <laughs> so, everything we hear, we think it's something else. Because Jin's theme in this movie, every time I hear it, I think it's the Yorktown theme from Star Trek Beyond. Well, it does start with the same melodic phrase. It has the first few notes of the Yorktown theme, and then it goes in a different direction. 
my problem trying to recall it after listening to the Rogue One album several times and seeing the movie a couple of times is when I try to recall it mentally, I still think of the Yorktown theme because I loved the Star Trek Beyond score so much. <laughs> but that that's actually one that doesn't have an analog. It's just a theme for a person. Well, it's a new character, and so, yeah, it doesn't... Exactly, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, like you said, the title fanfare that recurs a few times could be seen as an alternative to the Rebel fanfare. Well, other than the title card itself, it's used when they first get to Yavin 4, and it's used at least once or twice during the battle when the Rebels do something big and important during the battle at the end. And during Jin's stirring speech. Oh, is it there? I didn't notice it there. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. That one, I've seen comments from people who know more about the technical aspects of music than I do, and I've seen people saying that the first phrase of that has the same interval as the beginning of Luke's theme, and then the melody kind of inverts the uh, ascending phrase in Luke's theme to kind of go in an opposite direction, but still kind of keep some of the same language. I could see that. Kind of similar to how Across the Stars was sort of Luke's theme inverted. It really was, yeah. I, I, I could sort of see that. It's, it's, it's like a less melodic, more fanfare, more brassy inversion. I, I, I could definitely see that, yeah. So, after knowing that, and then seeing the movie again, listening to the soundtrack again, that fanfare has kind of grown on me a little. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I, I, I wish it was around more. Generally, whenever I hear a theme, I wish it was there more. Yeah, that's fair. Like, the only theme they really use enough in this movie is, like, Jin's theme and the Imperial theme. Those are both all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Shirt's theme is also used a good deal. I have to listen out for that. I haven't noticed that yet. Like, I notice while I'm watching the movie, I'm like, oh, I like this bit of music that's playing during this Chirrut scene. But as soon as it's over, and as soon as the movie's over, I have no memory of that music. Mm. I have to really examine the soundtrack more. I haven't had a chance to listen to it very much yet. But yeah, I think Giacchino said in an interview that about 5% of the score was pre-existing Williams themes. Uh, I'm surprised it's that much. I'd, I'd pin it more at like one or two. Well, there's also Luke's theme in the end credits, if he's counting that. <laughs> And at least the one appearance of Luke's theme in the body of the score when we see R2 and 3PO. Yeah, but that's like a moment. No, I know. It's, it, it's just, it's an accent that everyone's going to recognize, you know, if they're looking out for the music. Because it's, it's one of the most identifiable parts of it. But overall, Giacchino had such a hard job to do with this. And one of the things that he said was that he wasn't sure he wanted to take it on because the schedule would be so compact. Well, I think originally he was supposed to take a break because he just did Star Trek Beyond and they needed Doctor Strange. And coming up in the spring, he's doing the new Spider-Man movie, the third Spider-Man reboot in 15 years. And so this was supposed to be his break. And instead of taking a break and resting up and maybe going on vacation, he scored a Star Wars movie. Yeah. What uh, did you do on your last vacation? Uh, I tried to get some sleep and failed because I'm bad at sleeping. <laughs> uh, I might have vacuumed my house. Um, but yeah, he, he was trepidatious at first about taking it on, and he talked to his brother, and his brother basically said, Are you kidding me? You've been writing this in your head since you were ten. <laughs> 
Plus, how do you ever expect to get the job on episode 9 if you don't get your foot in the door? Well, we're all hoping for the continued good health of John Williams. Yes. But indeed, the Star Wars stories are pretty wide open. Unless Chikino does Han Solo. Yeah, I was going to say, is there a composer attached to the Han Solo movie yet? Uh, not that I've heard of. Is there a possible reason why they wouldn't use Chikino? If they bring in a director who has a strong preference for a composer that he or she likes. Like Alexandre Desplat? Well, you know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Other than the prequels, there hasn't really been a Star Wars movie with a bad score yet, so... You're a big fan of The Caravan of Courage? <laughs> by, by Peter Bernstein? I'm not looking forward to the day when there's a soundtrack CD with Star Wars on the front and it sucks. Right. Well, like, even the prequel scores had some good bits. They just weren't really good movie scores in the movie and but even they had some good bits. Well, you can't judge the prequel scores by the movies. They hacked that all the shit. They chopped and screwed those scores so bad, which they're not doing in the new movies. I mean, JJ Abrams as a director is someone who's very respectful to his scores. That was actually one of the reasons why there was speculation that Williams wouldn't return for Force Awakens, because he had such a bad experience working on the prequels. Well, he had kind of a bad experience, but he kept coming back because he liked George Lucas, and they're, they're Star Wars, it's his baby. Yeah. And, and then he came back for Force Awakens because it's his baby, and he met with J.J. Abrams and actually liked him. So, that's cool. And who is it who's doing episode eight? Is that Ryan Johnson? I have no idea. I, I, I think it is. But yeah, like I said, Williams just started in the last couple of weeks recording some score. He's going to do an additional scoring session in the spring once the movie is, you know, further in the editing process. Mm -hmm. You know, they're spreading it out quite a lot. Well, he had some health problems during the recording of Force Awakens. Like, he didn't get to conduct the orchestra for a lot of that recording because he had some sort of health issue. Yeah, he, he was able to do some of the sessions, but others, uh, there were other conductors that handled those. Yeah. So if you, if you spread it out more, if you get some of the work done now, then, you know, if something comes up later, there's less work left to be done and more likely that he would be able to finish the little bit that's left. Yeah, exactly. Plus, they're going by his schedule anyway. I think Spielberg is doing a new movie that Williams is going to do, you know... The Star Wars people, I think, are more than willing to accommodate whatever schedule John Williams has. <laughs> and meanwhile, if there's some time crunch on one of the other movies, you know Giacchino's always there. <laughs> that guy, he is seriously getting around. He does the Star Trek movies. He did a Star Wars movie. He's doing two Marvel movies in the space of a year. He's doing the Planet of the Apes movies. They keep making those. He does a Pixar movie, like, every other year or so. He's doing the Jurassic Park movies, where he also took over from Williams. Yeah, he, he's doing the Jurassic Park movies. He does, you know, Disney live-action movies sometimes. He does J.J. Abrams movies. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he is seriously, seriously getting around these days. Well, good. He's one of the few really good composers going around. You know, all these composers, they do all this drawl, dry music, this a-thematic oral set dressing with, like, no themes and nothing to grab your attention and nothing interesting going on. It's, it's, it's like the musical equivalent of beige wallpaper. Yeah, there are a lot of culprits for that. 
there are filmmaking trends, there are studio trends, there's temp music technology that lets people dub in music from other movies when they're editing, and so the editor edits to that music, and so when the director and the editor and everyone shows the movie to the composer, they say, well, just do something like that, but file off the numbers so we don't get sued. Uh, because of a time when Warner Brothers got sued. <laughs> Those issues are deep and, and complicated. Nine I, I, movie scores out of ten I listen to and immediately forget. G. Kino is not one of them. Even shit like Jupiter Ascending. I liked a lot of the Jupiter Ascending score. Oh, Jupiter Ascending score was so good. That was seriously one of the best of... What was that, 2015? I still haven't seen that movie, but it's, the score album is really good. The movie was uh, the, the movie was interesting. Elena, did you see that one? No. Oh, God. <laughs> I used to describe Lost in its middle seasons as joyfully daft. Jupiter Ascending is one of the most joyfully daft movies I have ever seen. I think that's best encapsulated by the fact that in the movie's universe... Bees sense space royalty. If you are space royalty, the bees will know. That movie is just amazing. It keeps throwing these... I keep going back to that phrase. It keeps throwing these joyfully daft ideas at you over and over and over and over for two hours. It's just a... It's, it is something to behold, man. Doesn't that movie feature Channing Tatum as like a half-dog man? Yes. And and uh, when he tells Mila Kunis this, her response is, mm, I, I, I love dogs. I really love dogs. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Puts a whole new meaning to Bow Chicka Bow Wow. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. We may have gone a bit afield. Uh, we're, we're not doing the Jupiter Ascending podcast quite yet. Although maybe we could in the future. Who knows? I think that we are going to wrap up. Okay. Uh, on that note. So, Elena, thank you so, so much for being with us for this episode. Is there any place you would like to point people on the internet? Oh, uh, if anyone wants to come discuss things with me on Facebook, I am Alana Jane. So you can come visit me there. And if anyone is in the mood for a good sci-fi that is not Star Wars related, uh, I would highly recommend The Arrival, which is still in theaters, but is probably leaving shortly, and is some really, really great sci-fi. I heard that was really good. Yeah, I think it's outstanding. A different kind of story. Well acted, beautifully scored. Yeah, just really good stuff. Cool. I'll take that under advisement. I have uh, not yet seen that either. Scott, where can people contact you? They can email you, I guess, and you can pass the message on. You're available on various social media platforms. You are not engaging in the social media game. I do not engage in social media. That is a time sink I don't need. You're not pointing people to your Tumblr. Not pointing people to either of your Twitters. <laughs> Nor my 17 different Facebook accounts. No, no, indeed. If anybody would like to contact me, I do engage on social media. I am on Friendster. Under what name? Bless your heart. That's a joke. No, I'm not. <laughs> Go with the fiction, man. We're in universe. I do not have a My Face or a Space page. Indeed. Uh, if anybody would like to hit me up on the buzz on my My Face or my Space page, 
I am Glenn Butler on Facebook. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Bun on Tumblr at the same. If you would like to email me, I am Glenn B, that's Glenn with two N's, like in all the other places, at placetobenation.com. Or comment on the Facebook post, uh, the Place to Be Nation Facebook page for this show. Hit me up. Let me know what you think, what you want to hear. Tell me what's good. Thank you, Elena, very much for being here. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Thank you, Scott, for being here as well. Thank you, and good night. to imagine during everybody's strife and death in this movie, Luke is just, you know, fixing stuff on the farm. <laughs> yeah, he's fixing a moisture evaporator, grumbling about not being allowed to go to Tashi Station. <laughs>